for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor program on 930 WFMV. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor program right here on 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast on iTunes. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hope things are going well for you and you had a, uh, a good week so far as we wrap it up this weekend. Uh, good program laid out for you. Interesting top stories, some good juicy economic data. And joining me in just a little bit, uh, we're going to be talking with my guest, Mr. Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow at the Mies Center um, at the Heritage Foundation, talking about uh, all of these states, various states that have passed election reform laws. And uh, what does that mean? Um, obviously, we're seeing this when elected officials uh, get into office. Uh, if they want, they can make serious changes, uh, and that affects people uh, financially, uh, their, uh, you know, economically, etc. So we're going to be uh, talking about uh, some of these changes and uh, the importance of having uh, fair uh, and legal elections. So Zach will be joining me in just a little bit. He uh, actually um, clerked for the United States Courts of Appeals for the 11th circuit and uh has a lot of other uh he was an uh, an assistant state's attorney uh in Florida etc so we're going to be getting to the bottom of this uh and really getting good solid information as far as what's going on with this new legislation when it comes to uh voting in certain states uh one of the reasons you want to make sure that again the right people are getting in there uh and putting the correct and fair policies in place. A good example, we saw this week that Honda and Toyota, which have the combined capacity to build over 3.5 million cars in the United States, have come out against a Democrat-backed electric car subsidy proposal that favors union-made vehicles. So the plan was introduced as part of the House Ways and Means Committee's three and a half trillion dollar spending bill uh it would increase the current maximum seven thousand five hundred dollar credit available for battery powered vehicles by four thousand five hundred uh for those built at plants that use union workers so that obviously sounds very fair doesn't it uh, that's just so stupid, and I can see why uh, Honda and Toyota came out against it so strongly. You know, Tesla, which is the only major American automaker that doesn't use union labor, uh, this is written by Ford UAW lobbyists as they make their electric car in Mexico. Not obvious how this serves American taxpayers and uh, there's a whole lot of truth in that. Also, we saw this week that Americans' inflation fears hit another record in August as the price of consumer goods continued to surge. This was uh, something that I saw on Monday from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, a survey that they publish. The median expectation is that the inflation rate will be up 5.2% one year from now, the 10th monthly consecutive increase and another new high for the gauge at the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Um, so this is something that they put out called a survey of consumer expectations. And um, 
they were talking about the inflation uncertainty or the uncertainty expressed regarding future inflation outcomes increased at both the short and medium term horizons to series high. So, again, they're hitting new highs with this. Uh, and it doesn't matter. Like when you looked at the survey, consumers, Celine, medical care, rent, et cetera, all to increase over the next year. So we've already been dealing this with months or excuse me, four months. And um, the they've kind of quieted down on the whole transitory, uh, which was such a poor choice of words uh, by the Federal Reserve and the administration. Because, of course, transitory means temporary. And when you've got four, five, six months of this already in your rearview mirror and you're still dealing with it at the gas pump and in the grocery aisle or anywhere else you look practically, it's not temporary. We've already passed that. Uh, so they're starting to, I guess, get it that people aren't uh, dumb like they want to believe they are. And they're not using that word as often now. Um, and then. Something interesting from a big firm on Wall Street, uh, according to Goldman Sachs, Biden's ability to win new tax hikes will dictate the future of the stock market. So the firm estimates that raising the domestic statutory tax rate and passage of about half of the proposed increase on tax rates to foreign income is going to lower earnings for the S&P 500. By 5%. Just want to let you know, what really drives the stock market at the end of the day is earnings. If a company's making money, the stock's going to do well over time and continue to be a performer. If it's not, and earnings decrease or even, you know, fall dramatically, you're going to see the market um, or that stock react in a, in a negative way. And um, so when we're talking about this, Goldman Sachs saying that earnings are going to uh, go down, that's a red light. Okay, so there's all the talking heads 24-7 on cable TV, on the Internet with clickbait and on the radio and everywhere else trying to tell you what's moving the market one way or the other. At the end of the day, as I said, it's a market. Um, so according to the chief U.S. equity strategist at Goldman Sachs, he was saying that tax, not economic growth, is the key risk to stocks right now. So obviously you want the economy to grow. You don't want to go into a recession. But if the economy starts to slow down or falls into a recession, what's going to happen to corporate earnings? They're going to go down. So that's a, a big problem with the additional taxes that are being proposed uh, by this administration and why some people are starting to uh, really speak out against it. Also, it was interesting. I saw that American incomes fell last year as we dealt with the economic fallout from the virus. And that was verified by the Census Bureau. So this new data in their annual assessment of the nation's financial well-being offers insight into how households fared during the virus uh, and during that first year and really arrives as Washington debates how much more money to spend. But the median household income was $67,500 in 2020, down 2.9% from the previous year. Now, 
In 2019, the year before the virus took hold, the nation's median household income inflation-adjusted record going back to 1967 when the Bureau began using its uh, current methodology. So think about that. Median household income before the virus in 2019 was the best and the highest it had been since 1967. The poverty rate in 2020 was 11.4%, an increase of one percentage point from where it was in 2019. So, you know, this is this virus that came from China and has killed people, made people sick, destroyed families and lives, businesses within a year's time or less for many people. And it's just unbelievable where they won't take any responsibility for it. And even try to come up with an idea of how some type of goodwill could try to uh, compensate. And I know you can never compensate for the loss of life and for those that have been so sick and for chronic illnesses that were triggered by the virus. You can't. But they've got to try to do something. They have to be held accountable. And it's a massive sign of weakness if they're not held accountable. Uh, something else I saw kind of get circling back around to um, what I touched on a moment ago, a spike in Eurozone inflation to above the European Central Bank's target is a temporary, get this, the word they're using, not transitory, hump, according to the European Central Bank. So, you know, th- that's actually worse, I think, than transitory. So the inflation outlook remains characteristic, or excuse me, characterized by a hump in 2021, right? So just think about a speed bump, right? That's basically what they're saying. But then they go on to say, followed by more moderate rates of inflation in 2022 and 2023. Um, I think you just went from a hump, considering you're going out over two more years, to uh, what are you, driving over a mountain maybe? Isn't it ridiculous how they talk to you? And these are all the same people recycled in politics uh, that make these comments. Really just crazy when you uh, when you look at how they name things and uh, speak to people thinking that they're going to buy into that transitory, temporary, hump in the road type of thing when people are really dealing with inflation problems every single day and we haven't even got into the winter season yet when you start talking about uh energy bills so um also we saw this week a trade group that represents the nation's meat processors including the big ones jbs cargill tyson's blasted the biden administration on i think it was tuesday for accusing the industry of pandemic profiteering And this uh, group swung back, saying that the government refuses to acknowledge the real problem with inflation. So in a letter to the U.S. Department Ag Secretary uh, Vilsack, who's worthless, uh, the North American Meat Institute said surging prices were a result 
of a nationwide labor shortage, which, by the way, I should qualify that. So Vilsack is a farmer from Pennsylvania. He was uh, ag secretary for Obama. Then when he got out, he went to work for one of the major big, big dairy associations as like their big head honcho representative, right? So you'd think that being a farmer himself, he would really be taking all of these serious issues into consideration. I saw him on a business interview on television, and he was asked how the dairy industry is going to compete with rice milk and almond milk and soy milk. And he had some half-baked answer, didn't even really take it seriously. But you know what he didn't do that is just common sense in the first thing you do? None of those are milk. There is no such thing as rice milk. There's no such thing as almond milk. There's no such thing as soy. There's no there's one milk. And that's a dairy industry's problem that they haven't they didn't get ahead of this and say, hey, you can't, you know, say you're a milk. It's a juice. But they're lagging. They let that horse get out of the barn. But he who was I think what was he making nine hundred sixty four thousand dollars a year. Some old political hack using his resume for being in politics to make almost a million dollars. And you can't even on television during an interview, correct somebody and say, well, there's only one milk. It's the natural real milk, etc." So that's why I say he's a hack, because I think he is terrible ag secretary, pathetic. Um, so anyway, this trade group sends this letter to Secretary Vilsack. Um, and it, the group is the North American Meat Institute. Uh, and they were saying that surging prices were a result of various things. So um, they said the administration cannot ignore the fundamental principles of supply and demand. Americans are experiencing firsthand what the secretary refuses to acknowledge. The effects of COVID and lack of labor are hurting consumers and nothing proposed by the secretary of agriculture on the structure of the meat and poultry industry will help families struggling to pay for groceries. So they just let them have it. Um, which, by the way, I'm not a big fan of those big companies either, JBS or Cargill, JBS in particular. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of this was sparked because there was a press conference last week, and Vilsack, alongside with uh, a economic director from the White House, painted the country's four largest meat firms as greedy middlemen. So that's nice to see that spat going on right now. And the best uh, top story, I think, this week was Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. He rejected a request by the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen uh, for Republicans to join Democrats to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. So uh, McConnell said that the leader uh, repeated to Secretary Yellen that he has uh, said publicly, well, what he has said sent, uh, publicly since July, and this is a unified Democrat government engaging in a partisan, reckless tax and spending spree. And they will have to raise a debt ceiling on their own, and they have the tools to do it. Perfect. 
The debt ceiling, which hit $22 trillion in 2019, is the legal limit on the amount of debt that the federal government can borrow on behalf of the public. So once that suspension is lifted, that was put in place then, the new limit was reinstated around $28.5 trillion, a figure that includes debt held by the public and the government. So what we I've talked about this the last couple of months, but what we saw at the beginning of August, the Treasury Department began deploying so-called extraordinary measures to ensure the government can continue to pay its obligations, um, at least for the time being. So Senate Republicans are resisting a move to raise the nation's borrowing limit and create more debt, with 46 of those Senate Republicans pledging to oppose any increase uh, with a vote that would require at least 10 GOP lawmakers to pass it. So it looks like the votes aren't there. I mean, I don't know if, you know, Romney or Murkowski or Collins, the normal uh, deserters, they, they might go over. But it sounds like for the most part, uh, Senate Republicans aren't going to be involved in this. And McConnell uh, tweeted that, let's be clear, with a Democrat president, a Democrat House and a Democrat Senate, Democrats have every tool they need to raise the debt limit. It is their sole responsibility. Republicans will not facilitate another reckless partisan taxing and spending spree. So good for them. Um, Now, if the U.S. fails to raise or suspend the debt limit, it would eventually have to temporarily default on some of its obligations, which would have serious and, you know, uh, hard implications as far as um, the economy goes, interest rates, etc. And the last time we had this type of fight, you probably remember, it was 2011 when the government shut down and, you know, you have the whole essential, non-essential, whatever. Um, so that's brewing. And I, my hope is they can tie they being uh, conservative fiscal uh, politicians, tie this into blocking as much of the uh, spending as possible that this administration is trying to get through um, because it's not. Like infrastructure spending, for example, that's such a lie. Uh, They're redefining infrastructure. So I hope they're able to block as much as possible. And um, I really don't care if the government shuts down because I do remember. Now, the markets are going to have a a very negative reaction. So prepare yourself for that potentially. But um, nothing. It wasn't a big deal in 2011 when you talked about essential versus non-essential. You know, it seemed to, uh, to to work out pretty well. Um, so we'll wait and see. But, yeah, get your uh, popcorn and your uh, large fountain soda and get a front row seat for that fight if it uh, turns out to be as good as it's uh, it's brewing so far. Our latest uh, complimentary white paper for you, inflation and your retirement. Are you prepared for rising costs? Very timely. Put this on a, a week or so ago. Uh, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right on the home page. You just click the button. And inflation and your retirement, are you prepared for rising costs? White paper will go right to your email. And uh, when we come back, we've got some economic data for you. So, uh, you know, stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. All the boats I missed. 
the hill I've caused All the lips I've kissed All the love I've lost I got kicked around I've been black and blue On my way to you have you ever thought about creating a one-of-a-kind piece of jewelry that's uniquely you? When you work with Colonial Jewelers on a custom design, you have so many options. You can select a diamond or gem and choose the perfect setting. Or you can take an existing piece and reinvent it. You can even start from scratch and design something from the ground up. No matter which custom design option you choose, you'll be working with our experienced master jeweler and designers. So you can be sure your finished piece is the same Colonial Jewelers quality you know you can trust. If you can dream it, we can do it at Colonial Jewelers. From Mid-Maryland, for Mid-Maryland, and all about Mid-Maryland. Free Talk, 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and as a podcast uh, on iTunes. And um, so, yeah, we didn't get a whole lot of economic data this week, but uh, some interesting pieces that came out I wanted to share with you quickly uh, before we get to uh, our guest. Um, Small business optimism index actually increased uh, four-tenths of a point in August, came in at a reading of 100.1. Five of the ten index components improved. And when you listen to uh, the chief economist at the National Federation of Independent Business, he's actually been on the program before, smart guy, uh, he was saying that as the economy moves into the fourth quarter, small business owners are losing confidence in the strength of future business conditions. So the biggest problems facing small employers right now is finding enough labor to meet their demand and for many uh, managing supply chain uh, disruptions. So we know all this. Uh, but again, overall, the report up four tenths of a percent, it just goes to to, to show you how resilient uh, small business owners are, how hard they work, their ingenuity, their entrepreneurship, um, their work ethic, etc. It's very, very impressive to stand back and watch, as I've done, a lot of these businesses just really, really put their shoulder to the wheel and um, and continue to push and push hard and do what's necessary uh, to be successful and to uh, serve and provide for people uh, in their area. So even though it's hard for them and there's some clouds on the horizon, they still continue to, you know, to, to raise their optimism. And I think that's a wonderful thing. U.S. consumer prices increased in August. Again, we talked about a ton of stuff when it comes to inflation. Um, and we saw that in the 12 months through August, the core CPI was up 4%. Uh, after it was up over that in July. So people are losing purchasing power, even though some wages are up. Inflation's up more. So that means your wages aren't keeping pace with the cost of items. So that's a, a, a serious thing uh, and, and an important thing, you know, to, to keep our eyes on. Um, 
The number of American workers who file for unemployment rose last week. That's not what we want to see. First-time filings for unemployment insurance, which is a proxy for layoffs, by the way, came in at 332,000. So that was after the, uh, well, it was up 20,000 more from the previous week, according to the Labor Department. And when you look at continuing claims, um, they were at 2.665 million. 2,665,000. So, again, not what we want to see. But that uh, 332,000 number for FER was in 2019. So people talk about that picture getting, oh, it's great. Yeah, it's not great. There is a ton of work left to be done. So don't let people cheerlead uh, and, you know, deceive you. When it comes to that, probably the best part of the the data this week was uh, the retail sales, because we saw Americans really spent at a nice pace in August. So I'm assuming a lot of that was back to school. Um, But, you know, retail and food services, uh, those were up seven tenths of one percent in August overall, which was important because they had fallen in July by quite a bit. Um, so retail sales, you know, they're they're looked at as a proxy for how the economy is doing, how people feel. Um, online sales surged 5.3% in August, according to the report. But really just, you know, spending at general merchandise stores, department stores, uh, home furnishings, etc., were all up uh, nicely. The only drag, or the biggest drag, I should say, was um, motor vehicle and parts. And also, it was interesting, spending at electronic and appliance stores were down 3.1%. But a lot of that is there people just, there's no inventory. So, you know, people are having a hard time finding certain things. And that's uh, why we saw that uh, that that drop in those categories. A uh, quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and just, uh, Judicial Studies. Um And we're going to be talking about these um, election reform laws that have been passed in many states and uh, what that means. And, well, number one, what happened? What did they do? Why did they do it? And then, of course, what does it mean for policy, for the economy, for financial markets, et cetera? Got nothing better to do than throw rocks at things that shine. Well, you ought to be chasing your own dreams instead of shooting holes. In- it's your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD, WFMD WFMD.com, and as a podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Um, As I mentioned right before the break, we were going to be jumping into our discussion this morning 
uh, on voting and all of the uh, the various legislation and proposed legislation that we've uh, been uh, hearing about and reading about. Joining me, my guest this morning, Mr. Zach Smith. He's a uh, legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And um, he served for several years as a, an assistant United States attorney in uh, Florida, also clerked uh, for the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and received all of his degrees, undergraduate, master's, and law degrees from the University of Florida. So he's a gator through and through. Good morning, Zach. Good to have you with us. Good morning, and go Gators. Yeah, right? I'm sure you feel that way. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, thanks for taking time to join us and to talk about this very important subject. I know uh, there's not a ton of stuff out there, I think, that's really um, easy for people to understand, and that's what we always like to do on the program is kind of break things down and um, and realize how it might impact us as uh, Americans, how it might impact uh, policy, which, of course, ripples into the economy, into the financial markets, into the business world. So one of the uh, articles I saw this week was actually from ABC News, and it's titled Senate Democrats Introduce New Voting Rights Bill. And that was on the 14th, I believe. So kind of give us an idea of what that is uh, when they rolled it out on Tuesday. Sure. Well, thank you for for letting me talk about this very important topic. So this is really the third bill in a series of bills that Democrats in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate have put forward. The first was H.R. 1, the so-called For the People Act, uh, that would really seek to fundamentally transform how elections are run in our country. It would seek to transfer most power away from state and local governments uh, to set even basic rules and procedures for their elections and give that power to the federal government. Uh, Next up was another uh, piece of voting legislation, H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Uh, And that act, uh, it it would attempt to do the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Uh, It would seek to transfer power away from state and local government to give it to the federal government in Washington, D.C., except that this time it would give the Department of Justice specifically the voting rights section of the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, a vast amount of power to to decide whether or not, uh, again, these changes to rules and procedures, even at the local level, could take place. It's a process that you may hear something about called preclearance. And both of those bills have kind of stalled out uh, in the Senate, don't look like they're really going anywhere so far. Uh, And so that's led to this most recent bill that you you referenced, the Freedom to Vote Act. Uh, You know, some folks will say it's a compromise bill. I'm not sure really uh, who the Democrats in the Senate were compromising with, (laughs) unless it's themselves. Uh, But it basically takes some of the worst aspects of H.R. 1, H.R. 4, repackages them, gives them a new name. uh, But at the end of the day, would fundamentally uh, accomplish the same thing, and that is it would prohibit states from enacting common-sense legislation to protect the integrity of their electoral process. And at the end of the day, would give the federal government in Washington, D.C., really an unprecedented role. In, in our elections in this country. Yeah, so that's kind of the what, like what they're trying to accomplish with uh, all three of these uh, pieces of legislation, including the the last one that you talked about, the Freedom to Vote Act. And it's, uh, to your point, a moment ago, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell was actually quoted in the piece as uh, not knowing, you know, what the compromise is. He just thinks that the uh, the compromise must be between the left 
and the far left. So they're negotiating with themselves, not so much with the Democrats. Um, So, okay, to me, again, it sounds like um, they want to federalize elections, um, even including potentially the Justice Department. Huge uh, overreach when it comes to uh, individual states and what they're entitled and should be entitled uh, to do when it comes to running their elections. That's the what they're trying to do. So then the question, obviously, is why do you think they're trying to do this? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. You know, I think if we take a step back from the election-specific context and kind of take the 40,000-foot view – you know, a lot of these bills, I think, have been put forward as an attempt to drive a conversation, find a wedge issue on the filibuster, uh, attempt to force a debate in the Senate on either abolishing the filibuster or significantly reforming or gutting it so that it's essentially meaningless. The problem the Democratic senators have had in the past is that their previous bills were not able to garner the support of all 50 Democratic members of the Senate. It looks like this most recent uh, bill, this Freedom to Vote Act, does have the support of all 50 Democratic senators, uh, which means that under current rules, it could not survive a filibuster unless 10 Republican senators came over and signed on to the bill. And so because the entire Democratic caucus is behind this most recent bill, uh, you know, it certainly looks like uh, this may be a better vehicle for them to try to force that conversation and try to force, uh, you know, kind of a wedge issue into the debate on whether or not the, the filibuster should be abolished or reformed. And again, they would need 10 Republicans for that. That is correct. That is correct. And so you'll hear, you know, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, you know, really step forward. They, you know, I guess, you know, by today's standards, they'd be the moderates of their party um, and have really kind of put the brakes on some of the more radical legislation we've seen coming out. But so far, uh, both of them appear to be on board with this most recent piece of legislation, and they're going to face a lot of pressure uh, from those on the, the left side of the aisle to really uh, sign on to either abolishing or reforming. Uh, you know, and when I say reforming, really means gutting the filibuster uh, so that it's essentially uh, just a meaningless uh, procedure. Okay, and, and that um, as far as the why they're trying to do that is, again, so that they have more uh, uh, federal government control over elections. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. And if the filibuster were to go away, uh, then not only would we see radical legislation coming out in the election context, you know, we see it in many other contexts as well. The potential for D.C. statehood would open up. You know, many of the uh, uh, tax increases, other pieces of legislation uh, that the Democratic senators would like to pass but cannot under current Senate rules uh, would all be back in play at that point as well. Um, So uh, from an outsider, I look at this and I say, well, okay, um, this is definitely an end around because we've seen for the Democratic Party has wanted to do away with the Electoral College. And they've recruited, you know, various states, uh, you know, one by one to sign on. I forget what the number's up to now. Um, But, of course, they always find themselves spinning their wheels there, that they're not going to be able to uh, undo what our forefathers uh, knew was going to be so important. Uh, Well, maybe they did know how important it was going to be in today's terms. But um, so that was a failure. So then they come, you know, and and they start messing with uh, elections in other ways, and that's just seems exactly what this is. 
Well, look, and I think it's important to realize what some of the issues and reform measures that states have enacted that have, you know, Democratic senators and Democratic representatives so upset. One of the most common ones we hear about today is photo ID. You know, we have many states like Georgia, like Texas, enacting photo ID requirements not only to vote in person, but also to vote by absentee ballot. Uh, and if you talk to folks, you know, photo ID is one of the easiest uh election integrity measures states can implement, and it's one of the most popular. It has broad bipartisan support because it is such a common sense measure. And at the end of the day, what many states uh, should, can, and should be doing uh, is essentially taking steps that make it easy to vote but hard to cheat. And unfortunately, that, you know, just doesn't seem to be very popular in Washington, D.C. right now. Which is a telling uh, tale in itself. I mean, like you, the great thing you just said there was common sense who in their right mind that's an honest and moral person would be against something as simple as showing proof that you are who you are when it comes to exercising you know your right to vote right well and look and one of the things we've advocated for at the heritage foundation and many of these states in fact do if for whatever reason someone cannot afford a photo id uh states should give them one so that they can go vote uh, because, you know, we're not trying to prevent anyone from being able to vote or participate in the process. We just want to make sure that there's integrity in the process. And that benefits you, whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're an independent, because at the end of the day, we are better off as a country if we have, uh, you know, safe, secure, fair elections. Yeah. And like you said, it's uh, it's not a big deal. I mean, th they want to hand out everything else with stimulus checks, et cetera. So, hey, here's a free photo ID. You know, it's no problem for us to do that so we can make sure that we do uh, retain integrity in our elections, which were extremely questioned uh, during 2020. And I think for very, very good reasons, uh, we're going to continue, uh, our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Zach Smith, who is a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial uh, Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Talk more on the other side of the break about, and I think it's 18 or so of these states, uh, that have, uh, put forth legislation and the importance of that and, uh, what kind of a difference that may make. Stay tuned. You say you were wrong to ever leave me alone And now you're sorry, you're lonesome and scared And you say you'd be happy if you could just come back home Well here's a quarter, call someone who cares Ladies what firearm does your future hold? Whether it's your first firearm or one of many, the trained, knowledgeable, and experienced staff at Hafer's Guns is here to help you find that perfect fit. No judgment, no intimidation, just guns. Hafer's Guns is your one-stop gun shop. 15411 National Pike in Hagerstown or online at haversguns.com. Bang, bang. From Frederick to Mid-Maryland, from the four states to the USA and the world, 930 WFMD.
Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 at uh, WFMD.com. And also as a podcast, just go to iTunes and uh, check out uh, your financial editor. And you can have uh, this uh, as a podcast or our past uh, shows as well. So help yourself to that. And uh, wrapping up our conversation this morning with my guest, Mr. Zach Smith. He is a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, served for several years as an assistant United States attorney in the Northern District of Florida. Uh, he clerked uh, at the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and he received his undergrad, master's, and law degree all from uh, the University of Florida. And during uh, law school, he served as the editor-in-chief of the Florida Law Review. So, um, Zach, you know, I was talking right before the break. There are quite a few states, and you alluded to this a a few moments ago, um, that are taking this into uh, their own hands and passing legislation. Give us, you know, just a kind of an overview of what's been going on there. Yeah, well, two of the most prominent ones that have been in the news are Georgia and Texas. You know, if you remember, you know, many of the Texas Democrats in the State House uh, fled to Washington, D.C. Yeah, that was real mature, <laughs> so there wasn't it? A quorum and kind of an absurd, you know, political stunt. Uh, but Texas uh, was able to eventually get a quorum and pass uh, meaningful voting reform legislation. Florida is another state that's taken uh, meaningful steps. And look, what many of these states are doing are enacting these common sense measures that we've been talking about, like requiring photo ID. But more than that, they're doing things like making sure that if they use ballot drop boxes, uh, that they're monitored, they're secured, and they're not placed where they can be tampered with or broken into. Uh, they're doing things like making sure you have to require some type of idea or identification when you're voting by absentee ballots. Either you have to show a copy of your ID and send it in with your ballot, or you have to provide your driver's license number or the last four of your Social Security number to make sure that someone is not voting uh, for you or that you're not voting multiple times. And then one of the most important things that states can do is that they can take steps to make sure their voter registration rolls are accurate and up to date. Unfortunately, in 2020, uh, with many states moving to vote by mail, uh, the errors in their voter registration list really you know, were very glaring and really compounded uh, any problems uh, that were previously there. And so states need to do things like compare their voter registration rolls against DMV rolls, against death records in their state, uh, against several national databases, uh, again, to make sure that someone isn't registered to vote more than once, to make sure uh, that someone who has uh, passed away or has become ineligible to vote no longer remains on the rolls. And if states begin taking these very simple, very common sense measures, as some states like Georgia, Texas, Florida, and others have done, uh, we'll be in a much better position in 2022 and 2024 uh, than we were this past election cycle in 2020. Yeah, and again, I think it's very, very timely. I mean, it's always been extremely important, um, but it's even heightened now because of uh, all of the uh, illegal immigration that we're experiencing with record numbers of apprehensions at the southern border um, not really sure what the numbers are up north for the U.S.-Canada border. Um, of course, with the uh, Afghan refugees coming over and, um, you know, who's handling them, who's going to be helping them, if you will, you know, air quotes there, uh, with potential voting. 
Um, so it's it's very, very timely and extremely important, um, especially from what we saw from the last election. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, and again, you know, this should be a bipartisan uh, issue. And unfortunately, it hasn't been so far to a large degree. Uh, but safe, secure elections benefit all of us, regardless of our party, because at the end of the day, whoever the winner is, we should all have confidence in the process and know that we had safe, secure elections. Yeah, that the numbers are accurate, that, you know, we're really, like you said, win, right. lose or draw, whether you're happy about it or not, you're confident, like you said, that, OK, this played out fairly uh, in a democratic uh, fashion and this is a result, and whether I, uh, I'm happy or not, I'm going to live with it, as opposed to a lot of skepticism. And, again, people wanting to oppose, um, you know, a photo ID. That, that, as far as I'm concerned, then you just want to be a cheater because there's no other reason. Uh, I mean, I purposely, when I go to vote, pull out my ID. And I know some of the workers get upset with me because they know, you're, you know, they know I know it's not necessary but i'm just trying to make a point you need to know who i am where i live and that i'm that person that you're crossing off on your rolls a hundred percent and think of how many other things you need a photo id uh, today just to function in society you know if you want to go into many governmental buildings you have to show an id if you want to fly you have to show a photo id you know if you want to in some cases send certain types of mail you have to show a photo id and so, again, this isn't some onerous burden. And to the extent if someone can't afford an ID or can't otherwise get an ID, states should give them one. Because we're not – at the end of the day, uh, as I said earlier, you know, the goal isn't to prevent anyone from voting or participating in the process. It's just to make sure that the process has integrity and that we can make sure we have confidence in the results at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly on that. My guest this morning has been Mr. Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. You can go to heritage.org and uh, just type in Zach Smith, and uh, all of his work will uh, pop up all free. And uh, very, very, you know, you know, we're good friends with the folks over at the Heritage uh, because they do such good work and it's honest and they roll their sleeves up and tell it like it is, you know, whether you want to uh, accept it or not. At least, you know, that it's factual. Uh, Zach, thank, thank you so much for, you know, taking time out of your schedule to be with us. I really enjoy talking with you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. And I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. You, too. And uh like I said, go to heritage.org and uh, just type in Zach Smith. As I mentioned, he's a, a legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies over there. And um, really good information. Uh, and, and, you know, again, in my opinion, and you know it, um, I mean, in November, I'll be doing this for 24 years here on the program. But that it's this is just common sense stuff. And my words, you know, again, nothing with what Zach said, but if you don't want of you don't support a voter ID, then you're a cheater uh, through and through. And you can spin it any way you want, but it's really that simple when you think about it because as we were discussing, whether you want to fly or go into certain buildings or whatever it might be, you have to provide that uh, that uh, proof of you are who you are, where you live, that you do have blonde hair and et cetera. So um, really, really important stuff. I applaud all the states that are making these really smart uh, changes uh, through legislation, and I, I wish them all the best, and I hope many more 
uh, sign up for that. Uh, that does it for us. Uh, we're out of time. I hope you have a great rest of the weekend. Uh, the free um, white paper we have for you, Inflation and Your Retirement. Are you prepared for rising costs? Boy, how timely is that, right? Uh, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right there on the home page, complimentary download. You click it, it goes right to your email, and I hope you enjoy it. And uh, I'll talk with you on the Morning News Express with Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick. That's weekday mornings, 550, 650, And then back here next Saturday for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial